Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, good evening, everyone. Hey, I think we can learn a lot about God's, God's way of working by looking at the lives of great people of God. Do you agree with that? And if we look at their lives, we're going to learn something about how he's, he's working within lives, within us. And, and so tonight we want to look at David. Um, he is a man after God's own heart, but tonight specifically a man of patience, a man of patience. And um, I'm going to have some people read some a little bit longer passages here, or at least one long passage. So if you're willing to read, would you raise a hand? Okay, Daryl. And why don't we all just turn to First um, Samuel 24, and we'll look at different portions of that and read different paragraphs of that. First Samuel 24, and uh, we'll read that in just a few moments. So have that ready. Okay, I'm almost there. This big uh, print Bible takes lots of page turning. All right. Okay. Um, I think there are at least three things that call for faith. And I don't mean, I just mean general categories of things that call for faith. The first is that we need faith to believe that God is great enough to handle impossibilities, right? We need faith for that. And then the second thing we need faith for is that we need faith to believe that God is, he's good enough to care for us personally. So, uh, God is great. God is good. And then I think the other thing that we, we need faith for is we need faith to believe that God is wise enough to lead us in his timing. So uh, his um, powerful or big enough or great enough to handle impossibilities, loving enough or caring enough to care for us personally, and then wise enough to lead us in his timing. So tonight as we talk about patience, patience has to do with believing uh, and doing the right thing in spite of difficulty and unfulfilled promises. And when we talk about unfulfilled promises, I don't mean that they're never fulfilled. I mean that they haven't been fulfilled yet. Anybody have promises like that in your life that haven't been completely fulfilled yet? They're, they're on their way. Uh, God has already begun them, but they're not completely fulfilled yet. Um, we don't know exactly how long David was a fugitive, but I thought maybe we would just take a guess at that. And here's my here's my timeline. It's super tiny down there, but maybe we can zoom in a little bit. Maybe that didn't work. Let's try it once again here. And if this doesn't work, then I'll just have to point to different portions. So I will have to point to different portions. So David's life is this, um, what would you call that color? Fuchsia? Is that right? Magenta, magenta. There we go. This is magenta here. We have over here, I'm just going to see if I can move my cursor. Can you see that? Okay, that little finger I'm pointing to, um, his bat, his anointing right there. Okay, you can see just a little circle. That's his anointing. And then not far after that, we think that David, David uh, killed Goliath. I don't think it was very long after he was anointed to be king that he, he killed Goliath. And then we have this period of time uh, prior to David becoming king. And so let's just say this area here, somewhere between Goliath and um, David becoming king, David becomes a fugitive. And we don't know exactly how long that is, but it seems that uh, David was a young man when he fought Goliath. Would you all agree to that? Um, Would you probably put him in his teenage years? I would think somewhere between 15 and 17 might be a good guess. I don't know if that's... We don't know exactly because the Bible doesn't say but the way it describes him, uh, he's a young man. He's not yet married. He's, he's probably somewhere between 15 and 17 at the time he slays Goliath. And would you agree with me that probably uh, the jealousies of Saul started then almost immediately after he killed Goliath? Okay, They're coming in from battle, and the chant is... Uh, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul began to take a jealous look at David from that point on. And I'm going to allow just for maybe a year or two for those jealousies to grow to full-grown spear throwing. 
Okay, is that all right? Is that a fair assessment? Maybe, maybe even up to two years from that time. So if he's 15, that puts him at 17. If he's 17, that puts him at 19. And so from that point on, we know that he's on the run until Saul dies and David becomes king when Saul dies. Do you know how old David was when he became king? 30. The Bible says he was 30. And then he reigned in Judah for seven years and then in, for all of Israel, 33 years beyond that. So for 40 years, and then uh, I think we, if we were understanding this right, then David dies around age 70. So uh, he's king of Israel at that point. So what that does is it puts it somewhere between 8 and 13 years that he's on the run from King Saul. Okay, So that's about a decade, maybe a little over a decade, maybe a little under, but just right about a decade that he, I think that's con, that's uh, reasonable to conclude that he's a fugitive between 8 and 13 years. That's a long time. That's a long time to be living, not only in the uh, intermediate area between promise and fulfillment. I know that there's examples that are longer than that. Uh, the promise to Abraham of a son, of course, is one example of that. But do you find it, do you think we find it easier or harder in our day? to uh, persevere and wait on God. Is it easier or harder, do you think? I mean, I don't, I haven't lived back then, but it seems to me in an instant culture, uh, it would be a lot harder to live in the intermediate period between uh, the promise and the fulfillment. And let me ask you this, does God accommodate himself to all of our cultural bent? No, I don't think he does. And I think we might expect that uh, one thing that our instant society has done is it's, uh, in some ways, it, it presents new challenges of faith because when we wait, we feel like we have to wait a lot longer and when things haven't developed as quickly. And so, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's right, and and that's a good point, and that's what I hope in studying this tonight that we can adjust ourselves to um, be willing to wait on God's promises to be fulfilled and know that he does things in his timing, and I think we're stronger when we do that because um, we recognize it for what it is. Somebody said, I think it was Eugene Peterson said, and he might have been quoting somebody else, that most people live within the last 10 minutes of their lives. In other words, we're kind of, we're under the tyranny of the present moment, and and that's true. Like if we're, we've had a really good day and then we receive some bad news, we're going to interpret all of that day in light of what we just felt. And I think that um, living the life of faith requires us to have a broader existence than the last 10 minutes. You know, we've, we've got we've to stretch back to the past where God has done things within history and made promises to us. And we have to cling to that in the present moment and we have to carry it into the future. And that's one of the beauties of being... Um, sentient beings with memories that can carry things forward is that we're not just animals acting on instinct and reflex, uh, even if sometimes it's trained reflex. Uh, we're much more than that. We can carry thought. And not only that, but here's the... We ought to, we ought to all know this, and maybe there's some people we need to tell this to. <laughs> we can stand outside of ourselves somewhat objectively and look at our decisions and judge those. Did you know that? Have you ever thought about that? Like when you get home away from an event where you said something and you go, you look at that and you go, oh, that seemed like a really wise thing to say in the moment and now I'm realizing it was really foolish. <laughs> okay, and so we can get outside of that moment and look at it a little more objective. I don't know if we can ever be 100% objective. But my point is, is that as we can, we can separate um, like our thoughts of ourself from that moment, and so we get a, we have a way of getting outside of ourselves a little bit, and that's part of our uh, privilege of being human, and I think it's something that God has given us in relation to him. Well, David's anointing was equivalent to a promise by God that he would be king. So consider this, the reliability of the promise was further confirmed 
by the fact that it was delivered by Samuel. Uh, do you remember what the Bible says about Samuel? This is early on in his ministry. It says something about Samuel. He grows under the tutelage of Eli, and uh, he gets to a certain point. And then sometimes the Bible, and if you're doing Bible study, watch out for these in a good way. They're summary statements. Every it's They're kind of smattered throughout Scripture. And that's where the Scripture stops and makes a comment on it, what's going on. Okay, Luke is famous for doing those. And Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. It's like a summary statement. And uh, what we have is in um, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 19, I think it is. I thought I had the reference there. It says, um, and the Lord was with Samuel, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. Right? Do you remember that? What does that mean in our, in our language? Everything he said happened. Everything that he said, and I would put this little caveat because we need to make sure that he un- we understand. When he speaks prophetically, with God's help, everything he said, God fulfilled. Okay? So now he's anointed... David is, by Samuel, and Samuel says, you will be king. Did Samuel do that of his own will? Like, he's standing there before the sons of Jesse. If Samuel doesn't hear from God, what does he do? The oldest, right? This guy looks kingly. He looks regal. He looks like the one, and God says something to him. For Samuel sixteen seven, remember? Not him. <laughs> That's the Dean version. <laughs> yeah. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. He's not the one. I've rejected him. And they bring in David, and, and Samuel pours the oil over his head and anoints him to be king. Says, "You'll, God has rejected Saul. You will be king. And uh, knowing that this is a word from God, knowing that this, knowing Samuel's track record, it's a done deal. Like, this is going to happen. Now the question is, when and by what means, right? How many have lived in that a little bit? That can be a messy in-between period between promise and fulfillment. There's that in-between period. We know, we know the what, but not the how and not how long it will take. And these things, they stand between promise and fulfillment with a kind of apparent messiness um, that can confound faith if it's not careful, if we're not careful. How long will it be? And what things will happen in the intermedi- intermediary period or the intervening time? It looks like it's going to move David further from the throne rather than closer to it. And if we look at things with just our natural eyes, at times we can see, we may see things that look like it's actually moving away from the promise. I don't know if you've witnessed to somebody And in the process of witnessing to them, they seem to grow more and more angry and resistant to the things of God. And there's kind of a spiritual secret there is that a lot of times when that's happening, it's because in the time that they're away from you, they're fighting God. And so pushing away resistance actually may suggest that there's some spiritual success going on there. I've seen people get angrier before they finally say yes, they lay down their weapons and stop fighting. And so sometimes it looks like things are going to move away from the promise as we, uh, as we walk along with God waiting for him to fulfill it. And so consider um, six things here. I, I know it should be the perfect seven, right? But sometimes there's six. Like God didn't give us seven fingers. He gave us five. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know why that is, but uh, maybe that's so we can depend upon him for the rest, right? But uh, notice some things here. Uh, The first thing is that David was alienated from the existing throne. So as soon as Saul begins to throw spears, the warning comes from Jonathan. My father has ill intentions towards you. Uh, He has to remove himself from the existing throne. So geographically speaking, relationally speaking, he's more and more distant with, with ongoing days from the throne of Israel. The second thing is that uh, David was being pursued by Israel's army, an army that if the promise of God is fulfilled, he will be commanding. When the promise of God is fulfilled, he'll be commanding Israel's army, but he's being pursued at least by a portion of that army. So this looks like things are going in the wrong direction. And then David was hunted by a king that is hanging on to the throne, and he's not going anywhere fast, right? 
I mean, you hear that Saul's uh, been rejected, and we sometimes think that's going to be right away. Like, he's out of there. Well, he was rejected right away, but there was a process of removal. Are you with me? Like, he didn't leave the the day that uh, Samuel declared that he'd been rejected and God would raise up somebody else. Uh, He hung on for some time, and, and we're seeing here at least the better part of a decade, maybe two, because we don't know exactly how close a relation Saul's rejection was from the time that David left. So let's, let's maybe even up to two decades, I don't know. But it's been a while, and he's a rejected king. He, we can see that he's rejected because he plays it safe when it comes to Goliath. But Saul is hanging on to the throne. He's not letting go. That that suggests that maybe David is being pushed further away. And then the fourth thing is David was joined by other outcasts from Israelite society. Like the way back in is not to gather around yourself these guys. Are you with me? This is not the the regal crew. This is not the king's army that's gathering around David. It's a bunch of outcasts. Some of them are related to him. Some of them are people that probably owe debts, runaway slaves. could be any number of things, but there's there comes to be about 600 of them that gather around David, a motley crew. It doesn't look like this is a king's group, and yet God's going to use this to teach him uh, the skills of leadership. And then fifth is that David, <laughs> I have to laugh at this a little bit because it's just the nature of um, popularity, isn't it? That I don't know if you've noticed this, but I would not want to be a Hollywood star for one reason, um, crowds are so fickle. They love you one day, they hate you the next. You know, And David experienced a little bit of this. He saves Kyla. He's, he goes up into the wilderness of Ziph. And two, two different times, two different people turn him in to Saul. Like the people overall are siding with Saul and against him. These are the people that he's going to be leading one day. So this looks like he's further away from the throne. You could take this as uh, a bad uh, bad omen of things to come if you uh, believed in that kind of thing. And David was living among Israelites' enemies. I think this is the final step is when we finally see um, we finally see David moving in with the Philistines. Are you kidding me? This is Israel's sworn enemy. And even at some point he considers going to battle against Israel with the Philistines, but providentially he was prevented from doing so. And uh, it's not that he has a hatred for Israel, but he found kind of a home among the enemies. I was listening to that on the way to church, and um, Achish was talking with one of his advisors about how weird it is that David has come over to join us on our side to fight against the Israelites. How could this be? The slayer of giants is now on our side. Everything looks like, here's the point, everything looks like it's going in the wrong direction. And all these things kind of were those signposts that say wrong direction. And so in the middle of that, he has to continue to trust God. And even while it seems that he's getting further away from the promise, he has to go God's way. And so I would suggest that if you're finding yourself in between promise and fulfillment, be prepared for God to use surprising events to bring it about. Like none of these things... Samuel, I'm sure, didn't say, and David, you one day are going to be living among the Philistines or hiding in caves between now and then. You're going to be anointed to be king of Israel. And then uh, also be prepared for God to have different timing than what we have. Like our timing is not his timing. There's a different timing to the way God works than our timing. Okay. So let's talk about patience for a moment. Uh, the New Testament challenge us, challenges us to patience. In Romans 12, 12, we're going to come to our, our bigger passage in just a moment. It says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And so we're urged to bear up under difficulty. There's two words in the New Testament that relate to patience. And I know we're, we're dealing with David in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament doesn't have a, a lot to say about um, a broader concept of patience. It talks more about waiting for the Lord, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a moment. But the New Testament kind of unpacks this a little bit more. And uh, maybe we can take a look here at what the, uh, the words are for the New Testament. Webster uh, says that our word patient, its primary sense is continuance, holding out from 
uh, from extending an act or quality of waiting long for justice or expected good without discontent. And in the New Testament, there's two words that deal with patience. If you have the the KJV, it'll use patience for both those words. If you have the NIV or ESV, it'll probably translate them different. Um, sometimes it will translate one of those words, long-suffering. Okay, so the first one has to do with people. Okay, We need patience with people, don't we? Okay, so patience uh, having to do with people. It's patience towards people. Uh, the Greek word for this is makrothumia, which is uh, something like long-suffering. It's to to bear up with people and not to get frustrated and uh, because the relationship causes suffering in some way okay? or aggravation in some way. And so there's patience towards people. The other thing uh, is patience towards things. And so we could put things or events here. That's an S. Things or events, and this word is hupomone, and uh, it means something like perseverance. And so uh, the New Testament separates these for the most part, and I'd like you to notice that what David's dealing with involves both these areas. Okay, he's, he's running from Saul. He's got to be patient with Saul. He's also got to be patient with the circumstances that he's dealing with that are created by Saul. And, and so a lot of times these words, you can see a clear divide but in James 5, it uses them as synonyms, James chapter 5. And I think I might have that here. Let me just look at that real quick and read that to you. You'll, you'll know where this is going. Be patient then, brothers. And I think it uses the one that's usually used for people. Uh, Until the Lord's coming, see how the farmer waits and the land yields a valuable crop. Patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains, you too Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So somewhere middle way through that, it's kind of talking about the same thing. Um, it switches and it uses the other word. But the concept is the same, is that we need to endure, we need to persevere until God does something big. What's the something big in that one, in James 5? Be patient until the Lord's coming, right? The Lord's coming. So that's the, the big thing. We have the promise of His coming. And, and by the way, we still live in that tension right now. We have to be patient and trust the Lord until His coming. That this is uh, we're living in that intermediary period right now, and sometimes things look like, uh, and I don't know if they just look like it, but they're getting worse. And it could seem that things are moving away from that, but that's what we expect according to the Scripture, isn't it? So, there's two words. Um, John Chrysostom he says that the distinction between these two. Describe someone who has the power to avenge themselves, this is that first one dealing with people, and yet refrains from the exercise of this power, while the other uh, word describes someone who has no choice but to bear, and only the alternative, uh, the only alternative to bearing is whether we do it patiently or impatiently. Like, there's things that happen to us that we don't get a choice about whether they happen, it's how we respond to them that we get a choice. Are you, are you with me on that? So then the decision has to be made that we can either do it uh, without faith or we can do it with the perspective that God's in control. Biblical patience, and this is, I think, one of the um, hang-ups that sometimes we can have by reading in uh, our culture into our Bible. Sometimes we read culture into our Bible. And one of the things that can happen is if you take the word patience, typically we mean by patience not responding to provocation. Okay, so somebody's annoying us, somebody's driving slow, and we don't do what everybody else does. And so it's passive, okay? Do you see that? That patience in, I think, in our thinking is passive. But biblical patience, these two words, they're not passive, they're active. And what that means is that despite these difficulties, we continue to bear up, which is an active thing. We bear up under it. 
So bearing up means that we continue to do the right thing in spite of the difficulty. And David's going to do that in his life. He's going to, he's going to have active patience towards the things uh, that are happening to him. Uh, he won't respond to what Saul does, but he is going to be busy about God's work. Okay, So it's diverted uh, focus away from those things. So patience is not passive. It's not merely putting up with evil. No, it's continuing to hope and to do good in the middle of it. And all of this is actively a result of hope in God. And this isn't merely endurance, but it's the brave patience with which Christians contend against various hindrances, persecutions, temptations, things that befall us in conflict, the inward and the outward. Uh, Richard Trench talks about that in his Synonyms of the New Testament. It's not, it's not passive, it's active. And you can see this in David's life, and I think you could see this as you look at the different circumstances that David uh, suffered exile unjustly at the hands of Saul. That's what he's suffering. He's suffering unjustly uh, exile at the hands of Saul. He uh, patiently endures that suffering for a long time. Okay, So it's not just Saul's mad at me, but he'll get over it tomorrow. This is years and years and years. And I hope as you, um, if you struggle, I don't hope you struggle, but if you do struggle and you look at what's going on in your life, I hope you'll put yourself in the position of these biblical characters and ask what it must have been like for them to go through these things and for that long. Because I think it helps bring perspective on life if we do that. The third thing is David uh, is presented with an opportunity to take a shortcut, and yet he refuses. And this illustrates the principle in David's life of what we'd like to show here, that he's presented with an opportunity to shortcut this, but instead he chooses to do the right thing, and David persisted through difficulty by trusting God and continuing to do good. All right, let's talk about the cave of relief, and I mean that in two ways. <laughs> All right, First uh, Samuel chapter 24. Daryl, would you read for us, um, read for, for us verses 1 through, one through uh, 7. All right, and Dean, uh, 8 through 13.
and J- that's good. And Jacob 14 and 15. Right, and then uh, uh, when David finished, Saul asked, "Is that your voice, David, my son?" And he wept aloud. "You're more righteous than I. Uh, you've treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered you, delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you've treated me today. I know that you will surely be king." And that the kingdom of Israel be established in your hands. Wow, there's a great uh, endorsement, isn't it? Like if you need some encouragement to actually hear that from your foe. Uh, i just like to point out some things. This is the cave of relief. For one thing, uh, there's potential that this could be the end of uh, David's fugitive life. Um, Saul goes in there. His uh, David's men happen to be in there of all the, you know, of all the gin joints in all the world, right? You knew where I was going with that, right? It could have been anywhere, but they chose that one, that particular cave, for him to go in and relieve himself. It's a euphemism for you know what. So he goes in there, and David and his men are hiding in the back of the cave. And then I'd like you to notice that this is a providential meeting, that this is, this is God giving opportunity for something to happen, but what exactly? Okay? And I'd like you to notice there's a misapplication in verse 4. What's the misapplication? The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemies into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Let me ask you, um, is there anywhere in Scripture where we've read that before? No, there's nowhere. Samuel doesn't say it. We don't hear it anywhere said to David. One possibility is that a prophetic word came, or we don't have all the words of Samuel recorded for us. Another is that this could be um, an inflated understanding of the Lord will be with you in all that you do. Okay? It could be inflated. Sometimes people do that with prophecy or the Bible even, that we inflate it and we add more to it, and it gets bigger and bigger, and we add on like, um, what's said, we add on all of this embellishment to it, and it starts to change form and take on new application. Okay, And we have to be careful of that. There's a verse in, I think, 1 Corinthians where Paul tells the uh, Corinthians, be careful that we don't go beyond what's written. Okay, We, can't, we have to be careful about adding to our Bible mythology. Okay, We've spent years in the Protestant movement trying to undo a lot of that, so let's not go back there again. Uh, so it could be that. And here's the other thing. Maybe uh, a word did come concerning this, but they're misapplying it to Saul. Maybe the word is, uh, God will put your enemies in your hand to do with what you will. But what God meant was like people like the Philistines and the invading armies. So instead of taking this to mean Saul, now his guys are saying, hey, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And it's a misapplication of that. Because David doesn't go for it. He doesn't go for the favorable interpretation. Even though this will shortcut his way to the throne, make life easier, he can go home today if he kills Saul. Shortcuts. Sometimes there are shortcuts. But not all shortcuts are meant to be taken. And if it's a shortcut, and this this is the problem with living in a pragmatic society, pragmatic uh, means that in our society, a, a lot of people think that if it works, that it's right. If it works, it's right. Some things we can do that will work are not the right things. And if we don't have a long-term and eternal perspective on things, we might do things that work in the moment but don't work for the long haul. Okay? And for David, this would work in the moment, but he wouldn't. we won't know what kind of judgment or guilt he would bring upon himself by doing the wrong thing here. So it might work to get him to the throne, but who knows what will happen after that if he's 
disobey God in this. And so he rejects that advice from his guys. He goes and cuts a piece of the corner of Saul's robe off. And immediately, it seems, he starts to feel guilty about that. Like, how would I even entertain that kind of thinking? And so that little piece of the robe is proof that he could have taken Saul's life. And maybe he felt a little bit good about that. Maybe that's what he's feeling bad about is that he, you ever done something, it wasn't quite the wrong thing, but you wanted to go that step further and you can feel guilty about something like that. And maybe that's what this is, but he feels conviction about it. Saul leaves the cave. He has a conversation in verses 8 through 13, and he says there that uh, God has placed your life in my hands and I chose not to take it. And um, then in verse 14, 14 and 15, we see a reconsecration of David. And by this, he's reconsecrating himself. Not that he's gone away from it, but he's saying again that I'm consecrated to going the direction God has for me. And even if that means the long, hard road, I'll go that way, not this way. Two chapters later, he has another opportunity to take Saul's life. And once again, he refuses the shortcut in order to do the right thing. There are shortcuts that are wrong cuts. <laughs> be a way to say that. But he refuses to do the wrong thing, and he reconsecrates himself, a dedication to the sacred purpose and trusting of the Lord. Look at verses 14 and 15. We can kind of see this a little bit. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Why are you? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. This is something that is, I think is really cool that uh, we as Christians should take note of. We see it in Romans 12, where we understand that in all relationships, there's not just two people. There's a third. It's God who sits above it and observes how we treat one another. And David here is claiming innocence, and what he's doing is saying that you are wrong. I may be wrong, but it doesn't matter whether I feel I'm right or you feel you're right. The most important opinion of this relationship is what does God think of it, and he will be the judge between you and me. He commits himself to that way and says, I'm trusting in the Lord that he will oversee and he will vindicate me if I've been righteous and all of that. And essentially what David's doing is committing himself to the long, hard road if necessary, even if it means further suffering. I don't know how much longer after this it is that David is a fugitive, but it must be a little bit because we have one more encounter like this. Saul goes home for a while and then comes back and hears David's in a certain place and tries to attack him again. And then after that, we start to head into those closing chapters of First uh, Samuel where Saul is increasingly paranoid about his life and he goes and visits the witch of Endor. And then he has that final battle with the Philistines. Um, and then, of course, he uh, he dies. But in the meantime here, we should know that David is con- consecrating himself and committed to going the Lord's path. And this is instructive. In First Peter chapter 4, verse 19, it says, So then, uh, those of you who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now, some of us might have a problem with that theologically. When would it ever be God's will for us to suffer? Is it ever God's will for us to suffer? Okay. Okay. When we grow, I'm, I mean, there's different reasons for it. God doesn't take pleasure in our suffering. I don't think we should read it that way because will can mean um, desire or will or pleasure. Um, it's not that he desires it in the sense of, I like to see that. Um, that's the wrong way but to look at it. But it may be that God sees some good in it. He sees some good in terms of a witness. He sees some terms of good of personal growth or discipline in some area of our life. It may be that uh, he sees that overall it will demonstrate his worthiness for us to serve him even if we have to go through suffering. You know, that makes a statement. If you're willing to do something when it's hard, it's a statement of value when you do it. Yeah. 
it's not easy to to work through all of this theologically, but we know that God has reasons that we don't know of. And um, I don't know that you can put every desire down to the, it's his, or every suffering down to the fact that it's his will. I, I don't know. But w- Yeah. And that's that's in scripture too that we we're to look at him and consider him who suffered so much. Yeah, the apostles suffered. I, yeah. So there there is a, a importantly in scripture a theological uh, a theology of suffering and that we need to come to, and we Pentecostals haven't been good at that because we've been triumphalists for the most part. And I think we we need to understand there is triumph in Christ, but we need to understand in the meet, middle road that there's difficulty. And they, they go hand in hand somehow, that if we, we suffer with him, we will also reign with him, the Bible says. And these these sometimes, sometimes we might get offended when we read this verse. Remember when Paul says in Second Corinthians, these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of, of glory, which will outweigh them all. I don't always like that. <laughs> Light and momentary. <laughs> well, Paul knows a lot about suffering, and I think he can say that as one with authority. But listen to the rest of this. Let those who suffer according to God's will, if he should allow it, let's just say that, if he should allow it, uh, to commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. What that means is that we entrust ourselves to him, even if we don't understand it. I don't know what this means. I don't, I don't know what this is for, but I know God's good, and I'm going to entrust myself to him and continue to do good. Like, don't let your difficulty be an excuse for bad behavior. You know, sometimes parents will say of their kids, well, they're just tired or they're just, ha-, you know, feeling bad the entire That's not an excuse for bad behavior. And when we're Christians, going through suffering is not an excuse for bad behavior. David could have said, you know what? I've been on the road all these years. I can hear the Willie Nelson song playing through his head. Is that right? On the road again? <laughs> Willie Nelson. Um, and I'm tired of it. <laughs> I'm taking the problem out. And God will have to forgive me because he knows how much I've gone through. It's not an excuse for bad behavior. And so he has to come to terms with it and continue to do good. And so out of this um, grows this idea uh, in, um, in David's teaching. He teaches through his psalms and um, mostly through his psalms, at least what's been carried on to us. And one of them is Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Let's turn there. And this is, this is a reflection, I think, that comes from moments like this where David has been away. He's been... Um, a, ref, uh, a refugee. He's been, he's been in exile within his own land. You can see these uh, statements in Psalm 59, 9, 62, 5, 145, 15. There's others, but Psalm 37, verse 9. What does it mean when it says uh, to wait upon the Lord, to wait upon the Lord? This is in Psalm 37, verse 7 through 9. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. There's no specific occasion mentioned for Psalm 37. We don't know what it is, if if there is one. It doesn't tell us. Uh, but it makes the most sense to see that this wisdom um, comes from before David was king when he was on the run. Okay? He understands something of what it's like. When you're king, you're not looking at other people usually envious going, I wish I had that. I know you're thinking of, I know you're thinking of Ahab when he's jealous of Naboth's vineyard, but that's not David. Okay? This, is, uh, this is something else. David's not jealous of wicked evildoers prospering when he's king. It may be the other way around that he sees that and he wonders. There's a theological problem that he has to wrestle with. Why do the wicked prosper? And why is it that the righteous seem to suffer? And he's working through that. Um, 
And Psalm 39 seems to come, or 37 seems to come from that. It sounds like things that you'd think about when you're on the run and yet trying to do the right thing. The people are doing the wrong thing. They're the ones who are empowered, and it looks like they're being blessed. Uh, but the response that's called for in this psalm, if you, if you read through it, we're not going to take time to read through it, but in this psalm, the power is with the wicked. So how do the faithful respond to it? Uh, the response is uh, commanded of calmness and contentment in verse 1, 7, and 8, and then trust and moral commitment in verses 3 and 5, quiet patience in verse 7, and confidence in the outcome in verse 10 and 11. So all of that to say that... <laughs> Those who are suffering must entrust themselves to their creator and continue to do good. That's what Psalm 37 is talking about here is that in the end, we have to trust the Lord and that he'll ultimately be the one who sets things right. He will. And and David can write these kinds of psalms because he's been in that intermediate period between the promise and the fulfillment. And he knows what it's like to deal with the difficulty day in and day out. I don't know about you, but if I'm going through a bad three or four days, that feels like a long time. Anybody know what I'm talking about? What about a bad month or a bad year? You had a bad year? Think about, what's that? Ten years? Okay, see, we're getting a little bit closer here to what David's going through. It's like a ten-year period where all things seem to be going bad, and yet he responds to it so well. And that's, that's a good point, is that we hear David writing things like, this is later, you know this isn't the only time he's in exile. Later on in David's um, reign, his son Absalom rises up against him, and David has to go out into exile again from his own kingdom. And it's like, here, here we go again, another one of these. He writes Psalm 3, where he says, uh, how many are they that rise up against me? How many are they that say of my soul, there's no help for him in God? And then he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I went to sleep, and I woke up, and the Lord sustained me. He was with me. So it's like that coming in the morning dew where there's joy that comes in the morning. And I think that the presence of God and his goodness is scattered through even our bad times. I mean, it's pervasive, but sometimes the cloud of present trouble keeps us from seeing it as we should. And in those moments, we have to... We have to cling to him and we have to walk with him. Oz Guinness uh, wrote a book called God in the Dark, and he talks about, I know I've said this before, but he talks about in moments when you can't see God's hand, sometimes you have to suspend judgment and just trust him. And I, I think that's good because there are things we know and there are things we don't know, and let's not judge everything we know by what we don't know. It ought to be the other way around, that we know God is good. We don't know what this thing is but we can trust God in the middle of it. Yeah. And beyond that, you know, that that's a that's an Old Testament promise. What we've got is even better because it's it's uh an eternity. We may have a f- you know, just a few more weary days and then we'll fly away. And it's good, right? Not just pie in the sky. It's good with God now, but it's going to be even better later. That's Thank you. Um, so patience is about waiting upon the timing of the Lord. And uh, his timing his is better than ours. And this is true for several reasons. Uh, one is that God works within the complete picture. David might have said during his life, God, I don't know what you're doing. You know, there's the Psalms where he says, how long, O Lord? And and there are other times when he's uh, praying about, Lord, what will, when is this going to stop? When are you going to restore fortunes? And so we need to understand that God works within the complete picture, and he knows all things, how they work together. And we might, in our limited knowledge, isolate one little decision from all the other things that are connected which matter. You know what I mean by that? Like we might make a decision based upon one thing that might be good for us, but it's not really good in the big picture. But if we'll trust God's wisdom, 
he sees the he sees it all how it all works together and it doesn't always seem like the best decision to us because of our vantage point okay then god also works within an eternal framework which means that temporary goals that may cloud our judgment are not a problem for him um we might ex- for example demand something that makes sense but only within time that has no bearing on eternity. And so we have these competing priorities with what God says is important. We don't always see the value of eternal things. We see what's right in front of us. We see the temporal. And and so if we're willing to trust him through this, he sees the big picture of how it works in the big framework. And David, I think, was a patient man. He trusted God through a period of difficulty, and he continued to do what's right. We have things like that in our life that we have to be patient with for a time a season of difficulty uh, where we have to trust God, a season, a difficult person or a tragedy or a hardship that we're going through, or we have to wait for a promise to be fulfilled. Uh, but we've, we have those things um, that we have to be patient with, but the, the call is to always recognize that he is coming and he will answer and he will not delay. In the proper time, he will come to you and he'll fulfill his promise and he'll bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening tonight. Let's stand. I, I thought tonight if you're um, going through a, a period of difficulty, I'd like to pray for you. Okay. So if that's you, lift a hand. You're going through something right now that's kind of difficult. All right. Well, that's good news. All right, Father, thank you for this word. Help it remind us, Lord, throughout this week and the coming days as we, we walk with you to, to take the perspective of faith and hope, to look to you, God, to recognize that, um, that, Lord, in the intermediate period between the promise and the fulfillment and the messiness that sometimes it appears to us to be, that you're still working and you still are fulfilling things. And that this may be part of... Uh, the development of us into creatures that are um, created to be in your presence for eternity as you mature us and you grow us and you sanctify us to be uh, your people. Um, I just pray, Lord, you help us to be submissive to your program and to walk with you through it and trust, knowing that you're good, knowing that you're wise, knowing that you're great, and that you do all things well. trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.